Let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, you guys. Nehemiah chapter 4. Excited about tonight and uh, the time that we're going to have this evening. And let's pray and we'll jump into this. Fathers, thank you for this evening. The chance to gather together once again as a group of men. To study your word, to seek your face. Lord, I thank you for each and every one of these men here this evening. And God, I pray that in this time that we would spend together right now in your word, this time that we would spend together in our groups, Lord, we want you to be glorified. And we just invite you, Jesus, to minister right now to our hearts. We pray, God, that that this would be a time this evening of you doing a, a work deep within us. And so we give you this time now in Jesus' name, amen. Tonight we're going to talk about the subject of discouragement. And I want to just start off by asking this question, what do you do when you get discouraged? How do you deal with discouragement? Do you isolate That's the tendency of some men. They have a tendency when they get discouraged or down to isolate themselves. Do you throw yourself into your work? That's me. That's what I do whenever I'm uh, dealing with discouragement is I tend to just push myself, you know, harder in my work. Do you turn to some vice or some area of compromise and just kind of check out? Some men do that. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at verses 10 through 23, and we're going to be discussing this idea of discouragement. And in the second part of Nehemiah chapter 4, we see some great insights into why we get discouraged, as well as some insight on how to combat it. But let's just real quick do a, a quick review Nehemiah is the story about God calling this man Nehemiah. He was living in Persia. He was a servant there to the king. And he gets word that his countrymen back in Jerusalem and Israel are really going through it because the walls of the city were still down from the last invasion. They hadn't been rebuilt. And so the people were living in a very vulnerable condition. And so they were really discouraged. They were really, really down and nothing was happening happening. Those walls weren't being rebuilt. And so God calls Nehemiah to go back and lead this group of destitute people to rebuild the walls. It was a daunting task, but we saw in chapter one that God gave Nehemiah this great vision. And he, he's able to come and, and share that vision with the people with the, the, they're there in Jerusalem to share what God had already done, the provision that he had provided. And he was able to rally the people behind this vision. But from the very, very beginning, we saw that he was met with opposition. And we see two examples of that opposition here in chapter four. Last week, we looked at verses one through nine, and we saw the opposition that came from the outside, that came from the the enemies of the people of Israel. And last week, we saw that the, the opposition comes to the way of scorn and ridicule, and the, because the enemies, they, they don't want the Jews to build and, and fortify the city once again. 
So they bring threats and accusation and mocking and intimidation against the people of God. And we noted that any time that you and I are seeking to engage in the work of God for our lives or engage in the work of God in the life of somebody else, any time that we are seeking to take back ground that has been lost because of sin or some compromise, the enemy is going to put up a fight. And so we noted last week that the way that Nehemiah dealt with that, that external opposition was that the people had a mind to work. In other words, they ignored the mocking and they focused on what God had called them to. Instead of getting sidetracked by the threats or filled with fear, they gave that to God. They trusted God to deal with their enemies. So they had a mind to work. They also had a heart to pray. So they were given to pray and they were given to seek the Lord with that situation and give it to him. And they had an eye to watch. And we ended our time last week talking about how we are called to watch and be on guard, to be aware of the schemes of the enemy in our lives. And I noted last week, and when I said this, there, I got a couple of O's, but I think this is, this is true. We as believers should never ever be the victims of a surprise attack from the enemy. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it shouldn't happen because we are called to watch. We're told to be on guard. We're, we're told that we're to know the schemes of the enemy. So that was last week. But tonight we're going to see a different type of opposition and this one actually comes from within, and it comes in the form of discouragement. And we're going to note four reasons for their discouragement in the second part of this chapter. If you're taking notes, the, the first is because of fatigue. Look at verse 10. Then Judah said, the strength of the labors is failing, and there is so much rubbish that we are not able to build the wall. So the leaders of the tribe of Judah come to Nehemiah and they say, man, we're we're tired. We're we're just worn out. And I want you to note back at at verse 6 in this chapter, it tells us in verse 6 that they were halfway done. That the wall had been built up to the halfway mark. And I find it so interesting as this is when they find themselves getting tired. At the halfway mark, you know that happens all the time. The halfway mark of a project is oftentimes the hardest. Because there's an excitement in the first half, right? There's excitement that, all right, we're going to do this. And you're getting involved in something and you're going after it. But then all of a sudden, after a little while, that excitement wears off. the The routine sets in and it turns into a grind. It can get boring. And it's easy to get fatigued at that halfway mark. You know, a lot of men experience what we call a midlife crisis. It's the halfway point in their lives that guys start looking around and thinking about, what have I done? And where am I going? And it seems like as they're looking at their life, there's so much work that is ahead of them and they can get discouraged. They can get fatigued. It's also worth noting that we'll learn in chapter 5 next week that there was a famine that was also going on in the land at this time. So the people aren't getting proper nourishment, and that also led to them being tired. 
And you know what, guys? I want you to hear me on this. I think the, that one of the times that we are the most susceptible to discouragement and even depression is when we are tired, when we feel fatigued. When you are tired and fatigued is also one of the times that you are most susceptible to the attack of the enemy. And make note of that. The enemy can use our tiredness But I also think there's a spiritual principle in this. That when there is a famine in our lives of spiritual nourishment. In other words, when we're not feeding on the word. When we're not engaging in the Lord in in prayer. We don't have a healthy diet. Spiritual diet of the word and prayer. We get fatigued spiritually. We run out of juice spiritually, which will lead to us getting discouraged and getting off focus. We lose perspective and we don't see things the right way. So the first thing we see, the first mark and reason for their their discouragement was they were fatigued. The second reason for their discouragement was frustration. Notice there in verse 10, they say, there's too much rubbish. Rubbish and discouragement are Siamese twins. They go together. Everywhere these guys looked, they just saw rubble. They just saw debris from the walls that were being torn down. And so the workers were focusing on the rubbish. We could say that they were guys who were seeing the glass half empty instead of it being half full. Instead of rejoicing and how far they had come, they saw how far they had to go. And they're looking at it like this is too much rubbish. And that can be the temptation of all of us. Let's say, for example, you're seeking to rebuild your marriage. And you get discouraged that, that although you've made strides, although you've had some victories, there's just still a lot of rubbish There's still a lot of garbage. There's still a lot of baggage. There's still a lot of hurt. But but you, I want to encourage you guys, you need to face the music though. Because I can't tell you how many times I've seen guys that, that, you know, they neglected their marriage relationship for five, six years. And it caused some damage. You, you, you guys that are, you ever go to our marriage group, you always hear me say this, that marriage is like a garden in, in this way. You get out of it what you put into it. Whatever you plant into it, that's what you're going to get out of it. You have a garden, you plant you know, tomatoes, you're not getting strawberries, you're getting tomatoes. Same thing is true in your marriage relationship. You get out of it what you put into it. And the second way that marriage is like a garden is if you neglect it, things die and weeds grow. And the things that die in the marriage is love dies. And the things that grow are things like bitterness, tension, Joy dies and it gets replaced by an an uneasiness, a lack of trust. And I've seen guys that they neglect their their marriage for five or six years and they they expect it's going to get changed overnight. You can't can't look at it that way, guys. You got to realize that, hey, this is what you sowed and it's going to take some time to sow some good seeds. There's going to be some weeds that need to be taken out and pulled out. If you're working on your walk with God, God is is working things and and things are happening in your life. But then you can look and 
be reminded that there's just so much more that still needs to happen. We can fall into that condemnation that we're just condemning our, ourselves. Sometimes some of us, we can be the hardest on ourselves, harder than anybody else. And you know what? We have to be honest. We all have rubbish. We all have garbage in our lives. We all have rubbish of pride and selfishness and, you know, things like doubt and unbelief. We, all of us deal with that. There is rubbish. There's garbage in every single one of us. And there always will be until we get to heaven. It's like I say all the time, none of us have arrived. We're all still a work in progress. And so we can make the same mistake in our Christian life that these guys were doing. They were focusing on the rubbish. And we can do that. We can focus on what God isn't doing instead of what he is doing. I think about John the Baptist. You know, John the Baptist finds himself in prison, in the dungeon. He's waiting to be beheaded. Two of his disciples come to visit him, and, and he says, you know, I want you guys to go find Jesus and ask him if he's the one, or should we keep looking? Is he the Messiah, or should we keep looking? And this is John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist who said, there's one coming after me that I'm not worthy to loose his sandals. This is John the Baptist who, when Jesus comes walking down into the Jordan River, he says, um, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is John the Baptist who says to Jesus, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. This is John the Baptist who who says after that, I need to decrease so that Jesus can increase. What happens? Now he's doubting. I call it he's in his dungeon of doubt where he's he says, Go tell, you know, the, go go ask Jesus if he's really the one. What happened? Well, he's in prison. And he's thinking, if Jesus is really the Messiah, why am I in prison? Why am I in this mess? And I love when these two guys come to Jesus and they, they come and they say, excuse, excuse me, Jesus, um, you know, John sent us to ask you this question. And I can see him saying, we're not asking it. So, you know, John told us, you know, John wanted us to come and ask this question. He wants to know if you're the one or should we keep looking for the Messiah? And remember how Jesus answered? He said, go back and tell John the things that you've seen and the things that you've heard, how the blind see and the lame walk and how the dead are raised. And, and, and I take from that in a very simple way that what Jesus was saying to John, John, don't focus on what I'm not doing, focus on what I am doing. And guys, we need to learn that because we can get discouraged when we're focused on all the stuff in our lives or all the stuff in whatever it is that we're working on that is still needs to, to get done, and we can get discouraged by that. So these guys were, were discouraged because they had lost focus. They were discouraged because they were tired. The third reason was a loss of fortitude, and, and this is when you lose strength. And, and when you lose your strength, the, 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 the first thing or the next thing that to go is your confidence. And notice how they end verse 10 there. They say, we are not able to build the wall. And we saw back in verse 6 that they had a mind to work, but now that's a thing of the past. And it's been replaced by this overwhelming feeling, we're never going to make it. Have you ever felt that way about something? 
I'm not going to make it. I'm never going to get over it. I'm never going to have victory in this area of my life. The problem was a misplaced confidence. The New American Standard Bible puts verse 10 this way. I think it'll be on the screen. They say, yet there is much rubbish, and we, note this, ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. Catch that? We ourselves. But the task was never solely up to them. Just like any rebuilding project that we are involved in, it's not solely up to us when we're spiritually speaking. No, the act of rebuilding the wall was going to be a God thing. It was God partnering with his people. And the same thing is true of us. That's why we're told in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. It's not our might. That wonderful verse in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself, what? Strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. That God is looking to show himself strong on behalf of loyal hearts. I love this verse in Psalm 80, 68, verse 35. Oh God, you are awesome, then you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel who is he who gives strength and power to his people. These men, their eyes were focused on the rubbish. Their eyes were focused on what was left to be done instead of on the Lord. And so they were discouraged. They had little strength. The fourth reason for their discouragement is really the result of all three, and that was fear. They were afraid. Look at verse 11. And our adversaries said, they will neither know nor see anything until we come into their midst and kill them and cause the work to see. So now they're not just mocking, they're, they're, they're threatening to kill them. And so it was when the Jews who dwelt near them came that they told us 10 times, from whatever place you turn, they will be upon us. And so their hearts were filled with fear because of these threats. Alan Redpath in his commentary on the life of David said, fear is the greatest enemy of our faith. And fear has a way of crippling us. And fear happens when we are focusing on the threats of the enemy. Notice that they they come, those who were closest to the enemy come and say, hey, this is what they're saying. They're saying they're going to kill you if you keep up with this. And it says they they said it 10 times. The enemy's relentless in his threats. But this is what they were doing. Those guys that were closest to the enemy, were, they were focused on the enemy instead of being focused on the truths of God's word. And the same thing can happen to you and I. We can get focused on the enemy. We can get focused on the threats, and it fills our heart with fear. But what does God's word tell us in 2 Timothy 1 verse 7? That God has not given us. In fact, say this with me, guys. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. Fear is not from the Lord. Now, what are some of the things that men fear the most? This will be a good discussion 
in your groups tonight. One should be thinking about this. But let me give you just a couple of ideas. A lot of times men feel failure. They fear failure. And so they don't want to take steps of faith. They don't want to venture out because they're afraid that they're going to fail, so they don't even try. Men fear that they're not enough. I think we're living at a time where a lot of a lot of men are dealing with this, this sense of just way too much pressure, way too much responsibility, and that sense of I, I'm just not enough. There's a fear that I think that a lot of us especially living in this economy. And, and I don't know if you saw this, but it was a news, I think it was in U.S. News and World Report that said yesterday San Diego is the most expensive city in America to live in right now. Isn't that crazy? And there's this fear of, am I going to be able to provide? Am I going to be able to make it? And we deal with all of this. But again, the Bible tells us, and we need to be men of the Bible, we need to be men of the word, that in Psalm 27, verse 1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear. The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? It's been said that one with God is a majority. And he wants us to trust him. Hebrews 13, 5, we're told, for he himself said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And here's why. Check this out. He says, this is my promise. I'm not going to leave you. You're not in this alone. None of us. Jesus is saying, I'm with you. You're not in this alone. So that, excuse me, we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? I love when David was giving this commission to his son Solomon in in, in building the temple. It says, and David said to his son Solomon, be strong and of good courage and do it. You thought Nike invented that. That was uh, David. Just do it, he says. Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not fear nor be dismayed. For the Lord God, my God, will be with you. And I love this part. He will not leave you nor forsake you until you have finished all the work for the service of the house of God. And I think that same thing is true of us. God's not going to leave us until we finish the work that he's called us to do. And he has a work that all of, he's called all of us to do. Read Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He calls us his workmanship there, and that we have been created in Christ. That means we've been saved for good works that he wants us to walk in. That he wants us to step in good works that have been ordained from the beginning of time for each one of us that he wants us to walk in. He's going to be with us to finish the work that he's called us to. So the people were discouraged. And how does Nehemiah help them get over that discouragement? Four things I want, you to, I want us to see tonight. The first one is we see there was strategic positioning. Look at verse 13. Therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings, And I set the people according to their families with their swords and their spears and their bows. Prior to this, the workers were just scattered all over the wall of Jerusalem, working on the wall. Here, Nehemiah gets more strategic. And at this time, he stations them with their families. Last week, we saw that he did that with a few. This time, he does it with everybody. He knew that they would fight the hardest, 
And they would work the most diligently for their families because it was an area of interest. It was a motivation. Seeing their families would be a motivation for them. And in our battle with discouragement, we have to learn to position ourselves to see things the right way. We have to learn to position ourselves strategically so that we are not putting ourselves in a place to be discouraged or we're not putting ourselves in a place that that we could easily fall or easily get tempted. So we see, first of all, there was strategic positioning. That leads to the second thing, which was a strategic focus. And there's two parts to this. The first is he exhorted them to put their focus on the Lord. Look at verse 14. He says, and I, and, and I looked and arose and said to the nobles and the leaders and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord great and awesome. I love that. He says to them, hey guys, you're too busy looking at the enemy. You're too busy looking at the rubbish. They needed to get their eyes off of that and get their eyes on the Lord. They needed, and we need to do this, guys, they needed to get their eyes off of the greatness of the task and get their eyes onto the greatness of their God. I think we talked about this last week, but it's, I'll, I'll mention it again. It's David going out to face Goliath. Everybody else is afraid to death to face Goliath because they're seeing a giant. David, though, sees Goliath in light of his giant God. He's like, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? That he would defy the armies of the living God. I'm going to take him out because God's going God's to help me. We must get our eyes, listen, off of ourselves. Because you're not big enough. David wasn't big enough in and of himself to take out Goliath. We need to get our, size, our, our eyes off of ourselves. We need to get our eyes off of the obstacles. And we need to get our eyes on to the Lord. It was the greatness of God that kept Nehemiah going. Turn back to verse one, chapter one, real quick, and look at verse five. Notice how he prays. He says, And I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God. Is that how you view God? As great and awesome? Here in verse. 14, he says, remember the Lord, great and awesome. Turn turn to chapter 8 real quick. This is after the wall gets built and they're having like a Bible conference. And Ezra is with them now. And and it says in verse 6 of chapter 8, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, amen, amen, with the lifting up of their hands. And I want you just to note this for a minute. They're they're praying like this, lifting up their hands. I'd love for us as a group of guys to start incorporating this type of posture when we pray, to, to lift up our hands. I don't know where this practice of folding our hands when we pray where that came from, because it's not in the Bible. 
It's actually an Oriental custom. It's how in the Orient they would pray, they would fold their hands. But Jewish people prayed lifting their hands because they were expecting to get something from God. So they're like a little kid going, hey, daddy, this is what I need. It's like your little kids, you know, when they come, it's like, you know, hey, can I, their, their hands are out because they're expecting an answer. And when you believe in a big God who's awesome, that's how you pray. You pray expecting an answer. But so often, you know, we, we, we pray not expecting anything. And so we hold our hands and God can't get anything into there. But we lift our hands. We put our hands out because there's a sense of like, God, I'm expecting something from you. Daniel 11.32 says, The people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Key phrase there, the people who know their God. Men, do you know your God? Do you know he's a great and awesome God? People who believe in a big God pray with expectation. So they had a strategic focus, first of all, that they had a big God. Remember the Lord, he said, great and awesome. Guys, we need to remember the Lord, that he's great and awesome. The second part of their strategic focus was he reminded them what they were fighting for. Notice The second part of verse 14, remember the Lord great and awesome and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters and your wives and your houses. He's wanting them to remember what was at stake, what they could lose. The Lord gave me a vivid picture of this years ago. We had this little puppy. His name was Toby. He looked a lot like our dog, Red, that we have right now. But he was real little, probably like maybe at the most a few months. And I came home one day for lunch, and my wife said to me, can you go look in the backyard? I I haven't seen Toby. I don't know know where he's at. Can you go look in the backyard? And I went and looked in the backyard, and I, I didn't see him anywhere. And so she thought he must have got out. He must have got under the fence. And so she goes, I'm going I'm to go get, I'm gonna get in, in the car and I'm going to go look for him. And so she's driving and, and, and something just told me to, to look in our pool. And we had a cover on our pool. And I pulled back the cover of the pool and there he was. He'd gotten trapped and he had drowned. And when Denise pulled up, and she came in the driveway, and, and I said to him, I said, babe, I'm really sorry, but Toby's gone. He, was, he, he got in the pool, and my wife starts wailing. She's like, no, just crying uncontrollably. Later that day, our kids all come home from school, and we tell them, each one of them, what happened. And they all start crying. And I catch my littlest one. She was, I think she was five years old, Amanda. She's 26 now. So this was a long time ago, but it's stuck with me ever since. And I catch her after a little while. She's out in the backyard and she's picking up Toby's toys. And she says, Dad, I just don't understand. Why would God let this happen? My little five-year-old. Heartbroken, questioning God. And right at that moment, this is what God said to me. He said, I want you to notice how they're reacting over a dog. Just imagine 
how they're going to react if you screw up. He didn't say that, but if you mess up, <laughs> just, just think the impact that's going to be. That has stuck with me ever since. We need, guys, we need to understand what it is that we are fighting for. He says, fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters. In other words, fight for your families. And if that was ever a word that men need to hear today, it's that. Fight for your families. Families are under attack today. And the statistics are incredible of what happens in a family when a dad is leading versus when a dad isn't leading spiritually. Studies show that without a father, children are at least are at an increased risk of sexual abuse, two to three times more likely to use drugs, twice as likely to drop out of school, two to three times more likely to have an emotional and behavioral problems, and more than twice as likely to be incarcerated. But when a father is involved in his kids' lives, children have more confidence, they do better at school, they're more emotionally stable, children are have more respect for others, and they're less likely to be victims of abuse. And this blew my mind. In a 26-year study, they found that the number one factor in the development of empathy in a child was his father's involvement. In other words, when a child has a father in their lives, they become more compassionate adults. Guys, we need to fight for our family. Amen? Amen? We need to fight for our kids. We need to fight for our grandkids. Those of you who are grandpas like me, listen, all you grandpas out there, your work is not done. It's not done. You can have a major impact in the lives of those grandkids. It's not just about spoiling them. Go ahead and do that. But it's more than that. Use that time wisely. So they had strategic positioning, a strategic focus. Number three, there was strategic working. Nehemiah wants them to understand that building and battling go hand in hand. Look at verse 15. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their plot to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall and everyone to his work. I want you to note this last line. Don't, don't pass by this. It says, and all of us returned to the wall and everyone to his work. Listen, guys, that was the victory. That was the victory. Defending against the attack was not the victory. Getting on with the work, that was the victory. And I point that out because when we are under attack, it's easy to feel like enduring the storm, not giving into the temptation is the victory. But that's just part of it. The victory is getting on with the work. The victory is engaging in what God has called you to. So the victory is not only enduring the attack, but it's also continuing the progress of the work for the Lord. Look at verse 16. And so it was from that time on that half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held spears and shields and bows and wore armor. And the leaders were behind all 
the house of Judah. So he says, look, half of them worked and half of them stood guard. Now, this could have slowed down the work. Only half of the guys are working now. The other half of the guys are are guarding. But you know what? It allowed those guys who were working to work undistracted because they knew their brothers had their back. You know, when the Golden Gate Bridge was completed in 1937, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. And during the first phase of the building of the bridge of that project, 23 men fell to their death off the bridge into the frigid, icy waters below. The builders made an adjustment. They they reorganized and they built the longest net ever made and they attached it under the area where the men were working. Was it worth it? Was it worth the cost and the time that it took to do that? Well, just ask the 10 men who fell without being injured. And not only did it save those 10 men's lives, the work was completed in three-fourths of the time because the workers no longer feared falling, that they worked undistractedly. And guys, knowing that other guys has your back is huge for us in the battle that we find ourselves in. Knowing that you have other guys in your corner is monumental to your spiritual growth and victory. Notice verse 17. So those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they held a weapon and every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So here's what Nehemiah is doing. He's combining work and war and those two things go hand in hand. Although we're always working, we never, ever stop battling, guys. Each man goes to work with an instrument in one hand for labor and another hand for battle, a sword and a trowel. It was Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher of the last century, who published a newspaper in his church called The Sword and the Trowel. And the name was clearly taken from this chapter here in the book of Nehemiah. And Spurgeon said this, the Christians should always be building the kingdom of God, but also be ready for battle at, every, at any time. The building of the kingdom of God includes both the sword and the trowel. The sword to come against every spiritual force of wickedness. What's the sword? It's God's word. And the trowel, which is also God's word. The building and battling go hand in hand. And verses 19 through 23 illustrate this wonderful blending of of this faith and this preparation. Notice it says, Then I said to the nobles and the rulers and the rest of the people, The work is great and extensive, and we are separated far from one another on the wall. Whenever you hear, or wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, and our God will fight for us. And so we labored in the work, and half of the men held the spear from daybreak until the stars appeared. And at the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me took off their clothes, except that everyone took them off 
for washing. So we see here, they're working by day and others are guarding by night. They had a strategic positioning. They had a strategic focus. They had a strategic working. And the last thing I want you to notice is they had a strategic gathering. They had a rallying point. We see it in verse 20 that Nehemiah says, wherever you hear the sound of this trumpet, rally to us there and God will fight for us. And I think the lesson for us in this, guys, is is we're not in this battle alone. None of us are called to be lone rangers. We need a band of brothers who will fight for us. You know, I met this guy last week in our, in our church, and he was telling me about this group of men that he meets with on Tuesday nights. And they're studying the, the word together. And he was sharing with me some things that, that were going on, you know, in his life. And I asked him, I said, are these the kind of guys that you can share those type of things with? And he says, oh, yeah, I can share anything with these guys. They know everything about me. And they pray for me. We know everything about one another. And we pray for one another. Guys, that's so important. I was talking with another one of the guys in our church last week. And, and he was telling me that, that he goes to um, our men's group on Sunday night. Meets right where the ladies are meeting tonight. And, and he was telling me, he says, I'm, I'm one of the, me and this other guy, we're the youngest guys there. We're the youngest guys that go. He says, all the other guys are like 80 years old. They're not, they're, they're, they're a lot younger than that. But, but he says, I love it because these guys are seasoned. They know the word. They're, they're awesome guys. I want to encourage you if, you, if you're not a part of that group and maybe you, you felt like, you know, all those guys are just a bunch of old guys. Hey, listen, what does that shirt say? Old guys rule? Um, no, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of depth there. There's a lot of life experience there. There's a lot of walking with God there. There's something to be said about being around seasoned guys. So I'd encourage you, I'd encourage you to check it out. You know, I know other guys in our church that like together, get together, and they play poker, and they smoke cigars, have a couple of beers. It's their way of unwinding, their way of checking out, relaxing. And, you know, there's nothing terribly wrong with, with that. But my question is this. Could that time be better spent building up one another. The Bible says all things are lawful. All things are lawful, but all things aren't expedient. All things don't, don't build up. Years ago, some of our youth pastors, when one of them was getting married, they would do these pranks. They'd do like a bachelor party, and they'd do these pranks. And these pranks were getting out of hand. I mean, it was crazy, the things that they... One guy, they like taped him all up with duct tape and they put him in a boat in the harbor and left him there overnight, you know? And it was just crazy stuff like that. And one of the moms called me. Her son was getting married. She was like, these guys are out of hand. You need to do something. I remember sitting down with them and I said, you know, I want you to think about something. You guys are the leading the youth here. And I, and I said, you know... These guys, these young guys are watching you. 
And what you guys are doing is no different from guys in the world, except you're not getting drunk and you're not going to, you're not having strippers. But everything else, the pranks and stuff that you're doing, that's what they do in the world. I said, why don't you guys think about doing something with these guys that are getting married that, that are, is not just only going to have a lasting memory, because those, those are lasting memories, but that they would also have a spiritual impact. And they took that to heart. And suddenly those gatherings changed radically in the way that they would take a guy on the night or, you know, a week before he was going to get married and they just were pouring into him spiritually and praying for him. Guys, we need rallying points. We need men in our lives that we can rally with, that we can get together with, that are going to build us up, that when you call, they're going to come. I have guys in my life that if I called them to tomorrow, they would jump on a plane and be here the next day. If they knew that I needed them and they were going through something, or they'd get in their cars and drive an hour, however it was, for them to get here. We need guys like that in our lives. And if you don't have guys in the, in, like that in your life, you take the initiative to seek those guys out. And so we see here, they had a strategic positioning. They had a strategic focus. They had a strategic working, and they had a strategic gathering. And that's how they were to overcome that discouragement. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men. And God, I pray right now that as they move to get in their groups, that you would bless these conversations. God, I pray that, that these men just would be able to be honest tonight with each other. That they would realize that, that all of us, we're in the same place. We all have our rubbish. We all have our baggage. We all have our garbage. But God, we pray that you would do a work tonight in our hearts, in our lives, in this time of discussion. Lord, I pray for any who are discouraged tonight that they would be able to get prayer and encouragement in their groups tonight. And so we give you this time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen.